Welcome, and thank you for joining us for another episode of KPMG's Inside International Tax, a podcast devoted to recent developments, observations, and trends related to U.S. international tax. I'm your host, Gary Scanlon, a principal in KPMG's international tax practice and formerly an attorney advisor at the Treasury Department. On this episode of the podcast, I'm excited to be joined by two of my colleagues, Justin Hill and Dan DeYoung, to discuss the state and local taxation of foreign income after the TCJA. Justin is a partner and Dan is a senior manager in KPMG's WNT State and Local Tax or SALT practice. Justin, Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Gary. Happy to join you. Justin, let, let's pretend purely as a counterfactual that I know almost nothing about state taxation. Can you tell me at a high level how states determine taxable income and whether and to what extent they conform to U.S. federal tax rules in determining taxable income? Sure, Gary. It's a great place to start. So most states begin the calculation of state taxable income for corporations with, with federal taxable income through conformity, you know, the basic premise, conformity to the Internal Revenue Code. So that conformity could be on a rolling basis, meaning amendments to the Internal Revenue Code automatically apply, or on a static basis with conformity to the Internal Revenue Code as it existed, for example, on a, on a specific date. And some states only selectively conform to certain provisions of the, of the code, which is often based on a, on a static date as well. And if we think about it, that approach you know, when we look, think about the TCJA and, and the impact there, when that was enacted, you know, major changes to international provisions, many states that automatically follow or conform to, to those provisions. So oftentimes a disconnect, which I think we'll, we'll talk about kind of throughout this, this podcast. And another important point is the, the concept of combined group filing versus separate entity filing and computations. So some states tax companies on a separate entity basis and other states require combined reporting or permit or require consolidated filings. Justin, you mentioned combined group reporting. What is a combined group? Is this similar to the concept of a U.S. federal consolidated group? Well, sort of. Uh, the, the first difference is many states require combined filing rather than, than making it elective. So if a group of corporations that file a state combined return may be different than the composition in a, in a federal consolidated return. For example, some states have greater than 50% ownership thresholds versus the 80% threshold for, for federal purposes. And state combined filing is generally only required where the group of affiliated entities is engaged in a unitary business, which is an important concept. And that generally means, you know, there's a certain amount of integration flow of value between affiliated entities. And it's important to, to determine that, to assess that and, and see whether the companies qualify or are required to file a combined return based on that unitary basis. The origins of the unitary business principle come from Supreme Court decisions related to the Commerce Clause and the Due Process Clause of the U.S. Constitution. Thanks, Justin. Dan, is state of incorporation meaningful for determining a corporation's state tax liability? Well, Gary, I'd say generally speaking, no. Uh, what really matters is where the principal place of business of that taxpayer is located. So that's generally the place where it's headquartered. And then the jurisdictions where that taxpayer has certain operations or is doing business. Thanks, Dan. So if the state of incorporation is not generally meaningful, once I figure out 
the income of a corporation or a combined group of corporations, including the state tax base, how do I determine how much of that income is subject to tax in a particular state? For instance, if I have a Delaware corporation that operates in California, New York, and Ohio, how do those states split the pie? Good question. Like so many of the state tax issues we deal with, this depends and it differs by state and it really has changed over time. So historically, states used a percentage approach to apportion their income among the states. So that percentage approach was made up of an average of three ratios, property in the state over property everywhere and payroll in the state over payroll everywhere and sales in the state over sales everywhere and an average of those ratios. More recently, like over the last couple of decades, states have moved more toward a sales factor only, or at least more heavily weighting the sales factor in determining their apportionment percentage used to determine how much income is associated or allocated to a particular state. Dan, so let's talk a little bit more about this uh, sales factor apportionment. Can you walk me through what this is and how it works? Yeah, sure. I mean, increased reliance on the sales factor has been a trend over the last 20 years or so. It started in Iowa, which was the first state to use single sales factor apportionment, which ultimately was challenged and went to the Supreme Court of the United States, which approved the use of a single sales factor. And the result, it's a sourcing mechanism weighted much more toward the state of the taxpayer's market rather than the state of production. Gary, going back to your example of the taxpayers with operation in California, New York, and Ohio, if 50% of the sales of the taxpayer were to customers in California, then 50% of the taxpayer's net income would be subject to tax in California because California uses a single sales factor. And the approach would be the same in New York based on the amount of sales in New York. In Ohio, it's different and it's interesting. Ohio does not impose a corporate income tax. Instead, it has a gross receipts tax that is based on the receipts of a taxpayer from Ohio sources. So that means a taxpayer could still have an Ohio tax liability even in a year that it generated a federal taxable loss. Dan, that gets me thinking. I've heard that the states could ignore U.S. treaties and actually tax a foreign company on its sales into the U.S., even if the U.S. federal government couldn't tax it. Is that right? It's right. And I think more true when you talk about a taxable presence in the state. In the states, there's not really an equivalent of permanent establishment. Instead, just having sales into a state without any physical presence or other activity in that state it can be enough for that state to constitutionally impose a corporate income tax on that out-of-state or foreign outside the U.S. corporation. Interesting. The idea of destination-based taxing rights, that is, taxing income related to sales of a business that lacks a physical PE, should resonate with those who listened to our episode on BEPS 2.0, in particular Pillar 1, which would allocate taxing rights to a jurisdiction over income related to automated digital services and certain consumer-facing businesses in that jurisdiction. 
it seems like the states may be ahead of their time in the taxation of extraterritorial income. Thanks for the the primer. Very helpful for those of us pretending to not know much about salt. Now let's turn to the focus of this episode, the state taxation of foreign income. That is, to what extent is foreign income included in the state income tax base? Let's start with the limitations. Justin, I was reading something about the Foreign Commerce Clause. Are there constitutional limits to states taxing foreign income? That's right, Gary. That's an important concept. So the Foreign Commerce Clause prohibits states from imposing taxes that discriminate against foreign commerce when compared to domestic commerce. And it's something that we always consider when we're looking at uh, international transactions. So, for instance, a state can only tax dividends from a foreign company if it's also taxing dividends from U.S. companies? Yes, Gary, that's that's one great example. Other situations where this concept comes up are with state taxation of subpart F income and Section 367 transactions, among other examples. The Supreme Court laid this out in a case called Kraft versus Iowa. In that case, the taxpayer received a dividend from foreign subsidiary that Iowa included in its taxable income. But if that same dividend had been received from a U.S. subsidiary, Iowa would have given a full DRD. Because that system treated foreign commerce worse than domestic commerce, the Supreme Court held that it violated the Foreign Commerce Clause. In the combined group context, the inclusion of foreign income without representation of the factors in the apportionment formula that produce the foreign income treats foreign income worse than it treats domestic income. And that would also be a violation of the Foreign Commerce Clause. And do most states tax foreign source dividends? Either through conformity to the Internal Revenue Code or, or separately through state law, you know, most states exclude at least some portion of foreign source dividends from state tax one income as a dual matter. Dan, how about subpart F? This has been around since the Kennedy administration. Have most states conformed to sub F? And is the treatment of sub F for state tax purposes similar to dividends? You know, it can be similar to dividends. And at this point, most states have provided at least a partial deduction or subtraction for subpart F income under their state laws. This can either be done by their conformity statutes, by excluding from those conformity statutes subpart F, or through a state-specific modification in state statutes affecting the federal income tax starting point. In a number of states, the amount of the subpart F income that's excluded is based on the ownership percentage of the CFC, similar to what's permitted for dividends received deductions at the federal level. And California, though, has taken a totally different approach. So instead of including subpart F income in the tax base, California requires CFCs to compute a ratio. And that ratio consists of the subpart F income of the CFC over the CFC's total earnings and profits, or EMP. And then they use that ratio to partially include that CFC as a taxpayer in the California combined group. So, for example, a CFC with subpart F inclusion of 10% using the ratio that California uses of subpart F income over E&P for that CFC would include 10% of its tax base and its apportionment attributes in that California combined return, even though it's a foreign entity. And to make things even more complicated, California allows groups to file on a worldwide basis 
in which the CFC would just file as a full member of that group, regardless of its subpart F income. So you have those two different ways of looking at subpart F income with California being unique and then the more general approach used by most other states. So is it important which entity is the one receiving the distribution or has the subpart F inclusion? If a U.S. multinational is going to hold a chain of foreign corporations, is there any relevance to which U.S. entity in the group is the U.S. holding company from a state tax perspective? Yes, it it definitely matters, especially in states that provide for only a partial deduction for foreign dividends or subpart F income. For example, if the entity in the U.S. group that owns the CFC that's making the distribution is an operating entity that's filing in multiple separate company states, then the income may be subject to tax if those states don't provide the full DRD. On the other hand, if that domestic entity was a holding company with no multi-state operations, it may not be subject to tax in those separate company states. If the domestic entity meets the requirements of an 80-20 company, then it can be excluded from the combined return group. And it's possible in certain circumstances or situations for the entity to be excluded from those filings along with its taxable income. So very important. For those who aren't familiar with the concept, an 80-20 company is a corporation that has significant operations outside of the United States, so much so that combined return states have decided the entity should be excluded from the combined return group. The terminology 80-20 comes from the idea that 80% of the corporation's activities are outside of the United States. That breakdown of activities is not necessarily exactly what states always apply, but it is a good indication that most of the operations of that entity are outside of the United States. Now let's get to the heart of this podcast, SALT and the TCJA. How many states have conformed to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which was enacted in December of 2017? Almost all the states have updated their conformity to include the TCJA at this point. The big ones that haven't fully conformed are still California and Texas. Speaking of California, my understanding is that California last conformed to the code during the Obama administration, so pre-TCJA. So did California miss their chance to impose the so-called transition tax under Section 965, or could they impose a transition tax if and when they again conform to the code in the future? Well, great question, because this has actually come up in California recently. There's legislation pending in California. It's Assembly Bill 71. And if it was passed, it would require corporations that are making a water's edge election to include 40% of the repatriation income of affiliated corporations. So sort of a delayed version of that federal repatriation that was included in the TCJA. And just as an aside, that bill would also address guilty and allow California to tax a portion of guilty. For now, California hasn't conformed. So while the world, as viewed through the lens of the code, is awash in PTEP from the transition tax, California must see only untaxed E&P. What are the implications that emanate from such a divergence of perspectives? Yeah, Gary. So, so like you said, California doesn't, you know, currently conform to Section 965. It also doesn't conform to certain consolidated return provisions 
specifically, you know, 1502-32 related to investment adjustments. So there, if you have distributions of of Section 965 PTEF, they could still be taxable in California and even other non-conforming states. So the important point here is the taxpayers, you know, need and have needed to track California PTEF separately and stock basis separately um, from the federal basis and and, and PTEF amounts. And this can and, and has caught a lot of people by surprise and often not in a good way. So for taxpayers filing on a water's edge basis, California only provides for a 75% DRD for dividends received from, from unitary foreign corporations. And so we saw this immediately after 965 inclusions where actual distributions coming back into the U.S. You know, resulted in significant California liability um, and continues to, to do so for many companies. Thanks, Justin. I have found there are very few tax surprises that are good surprises. We talked earlier about the taxation of sub-F. I assume that states that have not conformed to the code do not see guilty at all. For states that have conformed, is guilty generally treated in the same manner as sub-F? It depends. States vary on how they conform to guilty, especially on whether they treat it as subpart F income. You know, some states treat guilty similarly to subpart F income and allow a deduction. However, other states have taken the position that it, it shouldn't be treated as subpart F income and have not permitted a full or partial deduction. And states can also differ in their treatment of you know, related Section 250 deduction amounts that are computed for federal purposes. Some states follow the Section 250 deduction for the guilty component, uh, and other states have either their own um, deduction percentage or don't allow for a deduction at all. Dan, how about FIDI, the deduction for domestic corporations on certain foreign market sales and services? Do most states provide a FIDI deduction? At this point, Gary, more than half the states conform to the FIDI deduction. And one important thing to note here is that there's a difference between computing the deduction in states that don't follow the federal consolidated return rules versus those that do. And those differences can be quite large for taxpayers and can result in a larger FIDI deduction for separate state purposes. I think one thing also to note is why there's that difference. And a few drivers of the difference relate to there being a separation of FIDE from the expenses and QBI that go into the FIDI deduction and maybe even a separation of DEI in that calculation. All those items can be different for separate company state computations than they may be under the federal consolidated return rules. So that's just one more important thing to keep in mind at the state level with regard to the fitted deduction. Interesting. How about the provision everyone loves to hate, the BEAT? My understanding is that states generally don't implement a BEAT tax. Is that correct? Yes, Gary, that's correct. And that's because BEAT is an alternative tax rather than an adjustment to federal taxable income. And states begin their calculation of state taxable income with federal taxable income in general. And so that BEAT liability and the calculation of it doesn't generally directly affect the computation of federal taxable income. And so it doesn't directly affect the calculation of state taxable income. There's one exception to that in Alaska, which has a sort of beat. But other than that, states have not conformed to the beat. Taxpayers do need to keep in mind that the planning that they do 
to minimize their beat exposure at the federal level can also have state and local income tax implications. So, for example, if a taxpayer waives certain deductions to reduce or to avoid their exposure to the beat, that would generally result in an increase to federal taxable income. And that increase to federal taxable income would flow through as an increase to the taxpayer's state income tax base. So just something to keep in mind for those taxpayers that are working on their planning related to BEAT, that there can be those state and local tax implications that flow from that federal planning. Thanks, Dan. In the last two episodes of the podcast, we focused on BEPS 2.0 and Tax Reform 2.0. Justin, anything from a SALT perspective that you're keeping an eye on? For instance, how could changes to the guilty rules or the potential repeal of FIDI or indeed the creation of the shield impact state and local taxation? Yeah, Gary, we're keeping a close eye on, on tax reform 2.0. So the state treatment of guilty, FIDI, shield, and, and other provisions in tax reform 2.0 would depend, again, on state conformity to the code. So you have a situation where rolling conformity states may automatically adopt these changes, you know, including changes to guilty computation or the repeal of FIDI, for example. On the other hand, static conformity states may continue to compute guilty using the TCJA computation and could also allow the FIDI deduction, even though it may be repealed for federal income tax purposes. So I think it's going to create some complexity just from a compliance perspective if these changes were to be enacted. But it also can create some opportunities for us too. Ten or so fixed conformity states that would continue to allow the FIDI deduction without state action could be a good opportunity, a good result for, uh, for many taxpayers as well. For the shield, the denial of the federal deductions could also affect the state tax base. For years, states have had similar provisions denying deductions uh, for certain intercompany expenses related to intangibles and interest. So back to your point, Gary, on states kind of being ahead of the game a little bit, I think this is another area too. And if shield were enacted, just that denial of, of certain deductions could absolutely have an impact on the state base, but it's not something that's unfamiliar to most state tax practitioners as we've dealt with related party add-back rules and, and exceptions over the years. And we're going to get a lot more information on tax reform 2.0 by apparently the end of this week when the Treasury Department releases its tax proposals as part of the budget for FY22, the so-called Green Book. Justin, any final thoughts? Well, Gary, we, we appreciate you having us on. I think it's important all the, the different uh, you know differences between the federal state treatment on a lot of these issues that, that we talked about. I mean, clearly thing that the taxpayers need to, to consider, keep in mind, but also it's just a lot of opportunities that we discussed to stay ahead of things and generate good state results. And the key, I think, is just to make sure that you know, state and international practitioners are, are connected and talking about things, especially as changes occur, like a tax reform 2.0. So, again, we appreciate you having us on. And I appreciate having you on. So, thank you, Justin and Dan, so much for joining us today and to all of you for tuning in. Obviously, when federal income tax rates decreased under the TCJA, the relative importance of state and local tax only increased. So SALT considerations should be front of mind as we advise our clients. So in our next episode of the podcast, we expect to return our focus on the federal taxation of foreign income. As I said later this week, we anticipate Treasury will release the Green Book, which should give us a wealth of topics to discuss. 
So please stay tuned for future episodes of KPMG's Inside International Tax as we continue to monitor new developments and trends in international tax. Until our next episode, take care. Thank you.